This morning, I'm going to uh, talk from the book of Jude. I don't know if you've ever studied that book or know much about it, but I felt led to do it because my heart is, so to speak, been awakened by that book. I've preached through it before, but I come back to it now because it seems, well, so relevant to me. So my introduction this morning is not intended to frighten or to be dramatic, but it is to show the relevance of the book of Jude to what Christians are facing in our nation today and around the world. I think few would disagree that we live in troubled times. From my perspective, the old guy. Unless there is a sovereign work of God that brings a mighty sweeping revival over our land, things aren't going to get better, but probably worse. I'm not a pessimist, really. But I'm just looking at what the scriptures say and see what's going on around us. The world we live in has uh, all the signs of impending danger. Could we be entering the last days, as are talked about in the scriptures, before Christ returned? Now, no one knows, nor should anyone say they know when that day is coming. However, Jesus did say that we should expect some dramatic world events before his return. There will be earthquakes, ecological disasters, wars and rumors of wars, famines, lawlessness, persecution of Christians, and astrological signs in the sky. But one sign of the last days will be widespread deception propagated by false teachers and prophets. Their persuasion and their public persona will entice many to depart from historical biblical Christianity to follow clever demonic doctrines. They will use great swelling words, empty words, and perform deceptive miracles, or at least promise those miracles. Jesus warned, many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another. And many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. And because of lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. I'm haunted by those words. Paul gives us a further look into those last days. But know this, that in the last days, perilous times will come. For men will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy, unloving, 
unforgiving, slanders, without self-control, brutal, despisers of good, traitors, headstrong, haughty, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. This little phrase sticks out in Paul's words here. Having a form of godliness, but denying its power. And from such people, turn away. The church must be aware of the steady incremental falling away from true faith. These deviations have existed in every age, but the Bible indicates that they will be more frequent and severe as the day of Christ return nears. There seems to be a growing evidence that we are entering days like this. Our government policies, our arts, our entertainment, our publications, and our education curriculum are quickly showing evidence of a great nation decaying from within. There's political deadlock, racial division, and disdain for authority. Our nation is fractured. It's fractured like the San Andreas Fault that runs not just through California, but runs throughout our country. One pundit described our day this way. Ours is a talk back, fight back, get even society that is ready to resist and sue at the slightest provocation. Defiance, resistance, violence, and retaliation are now our style. He says, it is a world hell-bent on having its own way. It is terribly difficult to cultivate the right attitude toward authority. The question authority mentality is so interwoven into the fabric of our society, he concludes, it seems impossible to counteract it. The spirit of lawlessness is prevalent in our homes, our churches, courts, streets, and universities. This defiance is not only against government, employers, schools, churches, and parents, but also against the God of the Bible. We are seeing the erosion of what was once held sacred now becoming profane. The sanctity of life is being overthrown by political edicts. Marriage between a male and a female is being challenged by our own state school curriculum. Gender identity is no longer a matter of DNA, but preference. A government-funded study by the Department of Health and Human Services investigated the high suicide rate 
of gay teenagers. I just saw in the register this morning a report on suicide in Orange County that 22% of our youth, and I take that in high school, are contemplating or have contemplated suicide. Something's wrong. And the conclusion of this suicide rate comes from people, people wanting to know what it's about, how, what, what can we do. And uh, the conclusion made by a San Francisco psychiatrist gives us a prelude of what is awaiting the church. Here's his observation of why that rate is so high. He concluded, after his studies, he says, the study found that by teaching youngsters that certain behavior is incompatible with the gospel, the church produces despair that drives young teens to take their lives. In other words, he says, if Christians would not call sin, sin, Teenagers would not have disruptive emotional problems resulting from their lifestyles. He says morals are concocted by the church and others to keep our wild ids under control. And he concludes, this leads to repression and neurosis. That's what you can expect. That's what's happening. Now Christians are being blamed for making sinners unnecessarily guilty and feeling shame that is causing young people to commit suicide. The church that contends for the faith can expect to be classified as obstructionists to social and moral unification. That's what's coming if it isn't already there. Also, no longer does our nation blush at the most debased of sins. The more dark, crude, and gross something becomes, the better it sells. One movie mogul made this comment about this trend. He says, we are now dealing with a generation where the cat's out of the bag with every single subject. He concludes, society as a whole has moved into a taboo-free zone. Our taboo-free culture openly accepts and rewards pioneers of depravity. That's sad. Sadly, many Christians are going about their lives as usual while the culture around them is dying. It's not enough for the church to defend the faith, but we must begin to contend for the faith. The place to begin is to be aware. To be aware of what's happening around us what is actually happening to our country, to our families. And then to be prepared with biblical answers. And the scriptures give us the kind of perspective 
and wisdom that we need to live in days like this. And one book was written for such days as ours, and it is Jude. Jude was written during a day that was very much like our own. The author is Jude. He's the half-brother of Jesus. And he makes an urgent call. A call for the church not just to contend, but he actually is saying continue contending for the faith. He says in Jude, and I hope you have your Bibles or you can take notes. Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith. The faith that was once and for all delivered to the saints. Well, it's an urgent call for his generation as well as to our own. He, Jude eagerly wrote this letter to God's beloved, as he called them, and to the saints. In the darkness of the first century, Jude reminded Christians that God the Father loves them and will preserve them in Jesus Christ. I am sure you're aware of this, but it's always a wonderful thing to be able to say. We are God's eternal pleasure, called by His love and mercy. We, the church, are God's eternal pleasure. Jude also wrote about our common salvation. That is, our salvation is unmerited, undeserved, and uninitiated by men. We are saved from God's holy wrath, by God's holy Son, for God's holy purposes. And the same power that saved us from condemnation is able to preserve us in our salvation. That's why the Bible said, He who began a good work in you will complete it until the very end. Living in an age of apostasy, the church must take comfort knowing God's power. His power not only to save, to save sinners, but preserve them through the pressures and the perplexities of this age. He is able. Jude appealed to the church to keep contending for the faith. The faith that was once delivered to us. The word contend is an interesting word taken from a Greek word called agonize. That contending is a form and can be of agonizing. It, this word is borrowed from the world of athletic competition where battles were fought in an arena unto death. So to contend for the faith may call for agonizing when it is no longer fashionable 
to be called a Christian. But it is a battle worth contending for when we think about our kids, our grandchildren, and others we love. This is a battle that is worth fighting for. Contending for. Jude calls our faith in verse 20 as the most holy faith. The faith we have is a holy faith. Our faith is holy because it's a faith in an infinitely holy God based on an inerrant, inspired, holy Bible that tells us how to be saved and to be declared holy. That's worth fighting for. That's worth contending for. And those who love the truth are called to unashamedly defend and contend for it. Paul wrote to the Romans, who were going through very similar things that we are. He says, for I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. For it is, that gospel is, the power of God to salvation to everyone who believes For the Jew first, and also for the Greek. So the battle will continue until Christ returns. Because there will always be those imposters who attempt to thwart and to twist the word of God for their deceptive self-serving purposes. If anyone dares challenge false teachers... people in authority with applying false doctrine if anyone dares challenge them from the pulpit they will be called divisive in China pastors that I know are threatened threatened by their government because they teach the Ten Commandments you go really? Mm-hmm. they're especially restricted from teaching the first commandment. Thou shall have no other gods before me. You remember that? But the Communist Party, Chi, claims they are the ultimate authority even over God. That's what it means to be a Christian in China. And we wonder, well, how could this ever be? But if you're up on the news, you've heard legislation is being promoted in our state capital to prohibit counselors to help people who are going through gender conversion therapy, preventing them. And it's also to restrict pastors from preaching against anything held dear by the LGBTQ, I guess, plus community. Pastors will be prime targets and churches for class action if this law suit or this law passes. If we preach against abortion, 
Well, there's all kinds of things they say about us. Misogynists, maybe. If we preach against homosexuality, we're called homophobic or guilty of hate speech. If anyone preaches against gender neutrality, they're called bigoted. A number of years ago, after I preached a sermon on Jude, I received an anonymous letter. That does happen in churches. I don't know if you've known about that. <laughs> I received this anonymous letter from a disgruntled parishioner. Because in my sermon, I warned the people about false doctrines that were gaining traction in our country. And in the letter, I was accused of being, and I quote, You were contemptuous, finger-pointing, patently and fixed dogmatic. And I took that as a compliment. But I must not have been clear enough for that person. Everything we preach and teach must be measured by the truth of God's word. My critic thought that I was wrong to speak against anyone, even if they teach false doctrine or promote acceptance of homosexuality because it's, what do you think, divisive. Well, my friends, you know, doctrine is intended to be divisive. True doctrine will unite the church but true doctrine will also divide the church from false doctrines, false prophets, and the values of the world. That's what happens. You see, I believe in essentials, unity. In non-essentials, liberality. In false doctrine, full disclosure. And in all things, Jesus Christ. But in this critic's letter, they pointed out how offended they were when I spoke out against a uh, Pentecostal movement called the Vancouver Infilling. I don't know if you've heard about that. I think it's gone now. I don't think they're being infilled anymore. And in this movement, some TV evangelists got all excited and then so did their audience, and they started barking like dogs. I kid you not. Rather than in tongues. Um, they howled and they barked. They were also taught by these uh, teachers that there were semi-transparent spirit guides Heavens, I have an idea what that is. Spirit guides that could help them find their lost personal items. Um, and after reading this letter, there was no way I was going back on what I said. I am against sideshows. 
we must preach God's grace and love sinners. But we cannot compromise the truth of the gospel and we cannot stop from warning our people and others about false teaching. We must be aware as a church of how rapidly our culture is declining and is trying to press us, the church, into the world's mold of its values. And that's exactly what Jude is saying to his generation. For certain people have crept in unnoticed, who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the gospel or the, uh, pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord Jesus Christ. Jude warned of an imminent invasion of ungodly people. Invaders into churches and places of authority. Um, Jude warned the church to be on the lookout for those who silently and imperceptibly creep into churches to promote false doctrine. Jesus warned, there will be false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravenous wolves. Beware. There have always been and were always will be deceivers in every generation. But there will be a proliferation of these false prophets in the last days. Satan has many clever and devilish schemes and tactics. One of his favorite schemes is to put his people, his seed, into places of influence and power. Sometimes they are hard to detect because they come with religious rhetoric and advocate, as we mentioned earlier, a form of godliness but deny its power. Usually they are very charismatic persons that sway their listeners to believe in them. They speak with great swelling words of emptiness. And this is one of the characteristics of apostates. They draw attention to themselves rather than pointing people to Christ. These spiritual phonies were designated, said Jude, long ago for condemnation. Their destiny has been determined and they will not escape God's judgment. These false prophets, Jude say, pervert the grace of God in sensuality. They advocate a gospel that encourages their followers to live as if God didn't exist. They hold God's holiness lightly. They publicly profess to speak for God while privately living an immoral life. They preach liberty 
but create bondage through license. They claim Christian freedom and grace so that you can keep on living in sin. God's grace is free, but it was not cheap. It took the life of God's Son to give grace to us. We were not saved to stretch the boundaries of our self-indulgence. Rather, we were set free to serve Christ and not our own fleshly desires. Again, the apostles speak clearly to this for their generation and ours. Peter says, there were also false prophets among the people, even as there will be false teachers among you, who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the Lord who bought them, and bring on themselves swift destruction. And many will follow their destructive ways because of whom the way of truth will be blasphemed. They'll be blasphemed the one who brought truth. By covetousness, they will exploit you with deceptive words. For a long time, their judgment has not been idle, and their destruction does not slumber. The warning is real, and should be seriously considered by the church as it nears the end of the age. These apostates, these false teachers, deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. And the words that Jews use here are very, I think, powerful. That the Lord is, that Jesus is our Lord. He is our Master. He uses the word Master that comes from a Greek word called despot. This means one who is sovereign. The sovereign one who has absolute ownership and unrivaled power. That's Christ. But these people deny that Jesus is the sovereign ruler over all things. So when anyone redefines or limits the sovereignty of God or the holiness of God, they are guilty of shrinking and marginalizing him. Christ is our master, but he's also our Lord. And the word that Jude uses here in the Greek is kurios. This means Jesus Christ is the possessor and the disposer of all things, to whom all glory and honor are due. And those who deny Christ's deity and sovereignty are guilty of apostasy. They will be severely judged when they stand before Christ. Early Christians were not martyred because they believed Jesus Christ was God. But they were persecuted and martyred because they believed Jesus Christ was their Lord. Christians were executed if they wouldn't confess that Caesar was Lord. Chairman Chi is Lord. Things haven't changed. 
There's only one name. It's above all names. Paul knew that even in his day. Therefore God also has highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name. That at the name of Jesus every knee should bow of those in heaven and of those on earth and of those under the earth. And that every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Jude wants to also remind us of some important things. Remember that Jesus will prevail. He will prevail. Verse 14, or excuse me, in verses 5 through 7, Jude continues, Now I want to remind you, although you have once fully knew it, that Jesus, who saved a people out of the land of Egypt, afterwards destroyed those who did not believe. And the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of that great day. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulge in sexual immorality, and did what? And pursued unnatural desire, served as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. Is there any question why the apostles were martyred? <laughs> That's what they taught. Jude gives us a brief historical background to the things he's saying. First, just as the Lord saved his chosen people out of Egypt, so he's able to deliver his church from those who would do them harm. Hope. Remember this. Remember God's power. He has not only saved us from God's wrath, but is also able to keep us from stumbling like the apostates mentioned here in his letter. Remember this, that just as the Lord destroyed those Israelites who didn't believe, so he will judge those who reject the gospel of Jesus Christ. You may remember when Moses commissioned 12 tribal leaders to spy out the promised land. They returned with two very different opinions. Ten spies came back and uh, announced that God had played a terrible hoax on them because the land of Canaan was filled with uh, mighty fortresses and huge giants. They questioned God's sovereignty and his holiness. In essence, they were calling God a liar. But two of those men returned by the name of Joshua and Caleb. They believed, even though they saw all the dangers, they believed that God would be faithful to his promises. 
They were the only people above the age of 20 who entered the promised land. The rest of the nation died wandering in the desert as a warning to our generation. That's what Paul tells us. But with most of them, he's talking about Israel, God was not well pleased. For their bodies were scattered in the wilderness. Now these things came, became our example to the intent that we should not lust after evil things as they also lusted. And do not become idolaters, were some of them. As it is written, he says, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. Nor let us commit sexual immorality as some of them did. And in one day, 23,000 fell. Nor let us tempt Christ as some of them also tempted. And they were destroyed by serpents. Nor complain as some of them also complained and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now all these things happened to them. Why? For whom? As examples for us. And they were written for our admonition on whom the ends of the ages have come. It would be so foolish to think that our generation is not under the same constraints and the same measures of justice as Israel. Certainly these were difficult days. We know that those who fell would be persecuted. We know that they would be judged righteously by God. We must preach the love of God, but also but also the severity of God. Even though Israel was saved from bondage in Egypt, their hearts were still prone to return back to Egypt. Israel was an example of turning God's grace into lewdness. And just as the Lord has kept rebellious fallen angels in eternal chains, he has power over the forces of darkness today. This is a curious example that Jude brings up. An example of apostasy that preceded the flood. From the beginning, the serpent has attempted to destroy the seed of Christ, the people of Christ. We are told of an early attempt to do this during the days of Noah. In Genesis 6. And there we read of the serpent's attempt to infiltrate the human race in such a way that the promised seed, the righteous seed, would be destroyed by sin. This infernal plot included fallen angels or demons who were sent out by Satan 
They did not keep their proper domain as was designed or commanded by God. They left their places of darkness to influence humanity through sexual impropriety. And the effects of the sons of God and the daughters of men produced what the Bible talks about as a freakish, freakish race of giants and mighty men, of immense political power and evil. Prior to the flood, we are told, every intent of men's heart was continually evil. These demons were later chained by Christ in everlasting darkness to await their day of judgment. Apparently, they're chained right now. We are reminded that God not only preserved a remnant in Israel, but He also reserved a place of eternal judgment for both fallen angels and those who rebelled against Him. This is another example of those who turn grace into lewdness. He gives us another example, the fourth one. Just as the Lord judged immoral Sodom and Gomorrah, so he will judge a nation given over to sexual perversion. Irrelevant? These cities of the Jordan Valley were guilty of sexual inversion, inordinate pride, and ingratitude for their abundance of food and possessions. They indulged in sexual immorality. They pursued it. They pursued unnatural desire. Their inordinate pride and sexual perversion was known around the world and is still remembered to this very day. They are an example of those who will face eternal judgment. Now here's the point. This is the point that's so difficult for me. The wrath of God is now being revealed to us. You say, how? I'm thinking this is just an eternal judgment coming. No, I can tell you now, based on what I see in the scriptures, God's wrath is already here and it's being revealed. You say, well, how can that be? God's wrath says Paul in Romans 1, is revealed when he leaves the consequences of a nation's sin and lets it go. He says, so you want to do that? You want to be gender neutral? You want to have homosexual relationships, gay marriages? You want to hoard you're an ungrateful people. Go ahead. See where this... I'll, I'm going to leave you alone. That is the worst thing that I can ever imagine is God would leave a nation to itself. But that's what He's done and He's doing right now. A nation that not only encourages sexual perversion but actually applauds it will irreparably destroy the family and society. 
And when sin reaches a high level, God's wrath is poured out by letting the nation just drown in its own sin. Sodom and Gomorrah perished in their pride and their sexual perversion. But we are to love sinners. but not accept their lifestyle. Did you hear me? The church needs to have tears in its eyes when it looks at what's happening. Not a clenched fist. We are to love the lost. Love those who are in bondage. But we cannot accept the propaganda that is being pushed our way. So, wake up, America. Wake up, Christians. Because the wrath of God is now, at this moment, being revealed in our day. Jude has more. He says, Yet in like manner, these people also relying on their dreams, fantasies, if you would, defile the flesh. They reject authority and they blaspheme the glorious ones. But when the archangel Michael, contending with the devil, was disputing about the body of Moses, he did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment, but said, the Lord rebuke you. He's saying the Lord that Michael rebuked the Lord in the name of the Lord. Let the Lord do it. But these people blaspheme all that they do not understand. And they are destroyed or and are destroyed by all they, all that they likewise reasoning animals understand instinctively. In other words, what they understand is actually destroying them. It's self-deceived to think that we can continue without destroying family, marriages, and a country. Jude calls these uh, apostates and people in authority. He says, he calls them dreamers. And he says, recognize this present danger. Present danger. Dreamers rely on their dreams. They dream of unity. They dream of peace. But they deliver division and enmity. And they do it by defiling the flesh. By advocating sexual perversion. Jude says they reject authority. In particular, they reject the authority of God's word. And create lawlessness. They deny that there is such a thing as absolute propositional truth. In other words, truth is something you determine for yourself. It's not absolute truth. They hold to relativism. Every man does what's right in 
their own eyes. And if you can legitimize it for yourself, who cares what happens to you, what happens to our country? Now, this is not a political speech. I'm not speaking for any particular party at all. I'm contending for faith. They also blaspheme and slander what Jude calls glorious ones. In other words, nothing to them is sacred. These evil pundits mock purity. They disrespect divine and earthly authorities. But their blasphemy seems to be most directed against God's glory and the authority of his word. In this age of apostasy, they blaspheme and question God's holiness and his glory, just as the ten leaders of the tribe did when they came back from spying out the land. Do we know what they may say in the last days? Yes, we do. We're told in the scriptures that they will say, Jesus promised to return, that he would come and judge the earth, but where is he? He talked about judgment, but where is it? Well, my answer to that is, you're facing it right now. It's not just a future event, which will be climactic. But it's even now, slowly and imperceptibly, destroying us from within. These dreamers must be confronted in love in Jesus' name. And he introduces us to an archangel by the name of Michael. And his name means, who's like God? Love that name. He was a true contender for the faith. When Moses died, we are told that he was buried in an unmarked grave known to no one. So why was Satan wanting the body of Moses? Let me suggest something. I suggest he wanted Moses' body so he could make a rival monument, temple, maybe even a Jerusalem, where people would worship Moses and compete with the worship of God. Satan knows the religious bents of humanity and he twists them for his purposes. And when he was contending with the devil, he didn't say, I'm asking you to, you can't have it. I'm asking you to let go. You can't have his body. He didn't do that. You know what he said? You know, who am I to fight the devil in my own strength? The Lord rebuke you. New Testament says, in Jesus' name. We fight spiritual warfare in Jesus' name, in his power, in his word, not our own strength. Not our own power. Blasphemers blaspheme what they don't understand. How fascinating. 
Judas described the folly of these false teachers, leaders, who make claims to know so much, yet what they know they learned from their corrupt nature, from their fleshly desires. The Bible says that the man without Christ is spiritually discerned, meaning that he's spiritually dead, unable to understand the things of God without the Spirit of God. And their minds are blinded to the gospel and to the consequences of what they're advocating. So what they understand is what they feel. What they understand is what they were taught in school. What they understand is what other people are saying. They don't understand the things of God and they don't want to know the things of God because it's contrary to their desires. So, what do we do with all this? Like I said, this is not a political talk. This is not to frighten anyone or to be dramatic. It's just that at this stage of my life as a pastor, I have watched our country slip down a slippery slope. And it's not stopping unless God does a miraculous work of a revival. So I would conclude with these comments. Pray. (laughs) Know God's word. You will be tested. We're like the Chinese church that's facing all kinds of opposition. Ours is just beginning. Theirs has already begun. I will not be able to be with you uh, on the 13th of October for your baptism because I'll be in Ethiopia. But they're facing some of the very same things. It's going on like that around the world. Christians are being under scrutiny, under pressure to concede to the values of the world around them. And those who push back and contend will face consequences. And it is our privilege to be able to contend for the faith to the very end. Pray, read God's word, get prepared. Know why these things are spoken against in the scriptures so that you have a way of defending the faith as well as contending for it. So be not discouraged. Nothing new since Noah's day. It goes on just as it did then, except that there is a day when Christ will return. And when he does, It'll be a day of a sad day for those who rejected the gospel. But for us, it will be a great and glorious day. That's why we can contend and agonize for the faith because we know that Jesus Christ is our Lord and our master. Amen?
Now Jude, after saying all these sort of scary things, here's how he closes the book. Can you read it with me? Let's see if you can read it together. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy to God our Savior, who alone is wise, be glory and majesty, dominion and power, both now and And all God's people said, that's the hope. But the other things we talk about are the realities before that hope comes to fruition. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for your people. Pray, Father, that we will find in the midst of uh, these difficult days hope that we will love those who do not love us, love those who do not love your word, that you will teach us how to contend for the faith in days in which the faith is so dramatically opposed. Give us, again, your spirit in a magic, in a wonderful, majestic way that we'll be so filled with your spirit that it'll be obvious that Jesus is our master and our Lord. Bless your people as we go back to our homes. In Jesus' name, amen.